Bible reading today is from Acts 9, and we're going to start reading, or I'm going to start reading from verse 10. But the first nine verses of Acts 9 tells about Paul's conversion, his encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus, and uh, um, and so this is this is um, in in the midst of that story. So in Damascus. Starting at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. At once, he began to preach. Is that as far as I'm supposed to go? No, keep going. Keep going? 20. I've got one more verse. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, two more. Oh, sorry about that. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Good morning, everybody. 
it's absolutely wonderful to be back with you uh, here at uh, Woodcroft. We really feel at home in this congregation among you. From the year 2000 onwards, for about 10 years, uh, we finished up in of our parish ministry life, which we'd been in for 25 years, and uh, I began a travelling faith ministry all over Australia, which was a privileged experience. And during that time, God gave me a motto. There's nothing like showing up. There's nothing like showing up. In John 1, it says, more or less, the word became flesh and showed up among us. The word is tabernacled or pitched his tent or pitched in with us. Jesus understood himself as he whom God has sent. Very often he referred to his heavenly father as him who sent me. He said, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Brothers and sisters, it is this sending love of God and the visitation or coming of God to us in this world that is so surprisingly wonderful. Jesus' disciples joyfully declared, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Not only was Jesus the sent one, but the church was to become a sent community. Jesus called his disciples apostles, and the Greek word apostolos means one who is sent. Jesus, Mark says, appointed 12, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And while he was with them, he said to them, as he was about to send them out, he said, look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And then after the resurrection, he said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Just note that he didn't say, uh, go into all the world and build churches and massive cathedrals. Buildings can be useful, that's absolutely certain, and we're glad we're in one this morning. 
but they can distract you and even imprison you. Christians are, by essence, a going people. In that so-called Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now, the Greek word here, go, is uh, not an imperative. An imperative is a command. It's actually a participle, an ing word, going. Going, therefore, uh, into all the world. Or, as you go, as you go about your, your daily life. Christians are a sent people, and going is our way of life. You might say we're a bunch of goers. Now, when we hear Jesus' command to go, we tend to think of it as applying to those Christians who are called to leave their place of abode and to travel a distance in, in the world to minister to a group of people way over there, like Hank and Ella did when they went to Africa for how long, Hank? 25 years, just 25. We call these people missionaries. However, God is intending, however, going is intended for all Christians as a way of life, even when we continue to live at home. Now, to understand this, we need to realize that there are distances between people which are not measured in kilometres. And I want to briefly share with you five such distances. The first one is racial distance. When we went to live in Port Augusta, where we were for eight years, uh, Port Augusta is a town with a large Aboriginal population. And after we'd been there a little while, we realised that none of the non-Aboriginal people in our congregations had ever been into the home of an Aboriginal family. Here we have two communities living in the same town, uh, but there is a distance, a racial distance between them. A racial distance unless someone is prepared to go the distance. Then there is a social distance. We don't have the old class barriers that existed in parts of Australia a hundred or more years ago, but people still gather in social groups. And between those groups, there may be quite uh, a distance. For example, the church folk and the pub crowd. There's, there's a distance there. Then there's an economic distance. There's an instinct in humans... Uh, to avoid those who are poorer than we are because of the demands that they may make upon our more abundant resources. 
So people socially tend to relate to those who are at least as well off as they are. By contrast, Jesus instructs us, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers, your relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and be, you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. Again, there is a moral dis- distance. We tend to stay away from those we regard as morally inferior or morally superior. We keep our distance from those who've been in prison, those with a bad reputation. Certain groups are identified as undesirables and are treated as moral lepers. Prisoners, bikies, street kids, sex offenders. But Jesus travelled the distance between the righteous and the unrighteous. The scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, hey, why does does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And finally, in my group uh, of distances is the religious distance. There's a very real distance between people of different religious communities. Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, Hindu, Sikh, and so on. And to this group of uh, six distances, we could add others of age, gender, language, politics, etc. We even have football tribes. And, and I don't know whether you know, but in our congregation there is a great distance because our pastor, Colin, is a very great supporter of Manchester City. And here in the congregation is a retired pastor named Hank, and he's a long-term supporter of Manchester United. Yeah, so if, if you sense there's any undercurrent of conflict in the congregation, well, you know where it's coming from. These distances are real and separate people. And it is in this climate of the true tyranny of distance that Christians hear Christ's command to go. Now, I have shared with you in the motif of going. What I want to do is now to present the other major motif of the Christian church... Uh, which is gathering. Because it's important to see that going and gathering go together in balance and they are, in effect, 
like the going out and the coming in of the tide. That is the life of the people of God. That's why we're called a congregation or an assembly or a church. The word church actually means congregation. In Acts 2, after the day of Pentecost, Luke concludes that chapter by describing the gathering of the church. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. These two motifs of going and gathering actually feed each other and give dynamic meaning to each other. Our worship derives some of its significance from our going into the world during the week in the name of Christ. And our going in the name of Christ is empowered by what we do when we gather. In Acts 4, uh, Luke tells us that when the apostles were released, uh, they'd gone and preached in the temple and got arrested and, and interrogated. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and prayed this wonderful prayer. You can look at it in Acts 4. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see the dynamic of the going and the gathering? Friends, a faith community that just gathers... And then a week later, gathers. And then a week later, gathers again. This community will lose its awe and excitement. It will become like a dodge tide kind of day. Have you ever been to the beach on a day when there's a dodge tide? Sea goes out. <laughs> That's it for the day. It's kind of dead. One comedian observed that Christians are like cowpats. You know what a cowpat is? And, and then the sun dries it and it's a nice little cake. Cow cake, it's sometimes called. Christians are like cow cakes. If they are piled up in one place, they create a big stink. But if they are spread out across the ground, they can do a lot of good. Perhaps one of the hassles in churches comes from gathering and gathering instead of going and gathering. Okay, we've set the ground, going and gathering. And uh, anything to do with going tends to scare us and give us a sense of being ill-equipped and not having a clue how to do that. Um, I want to share with you three things today which actually, in a sense, kind of precede 
any specific sharing of the gospel, but they are part of the going. And uh, by seeing how they work, that may encourage you uh, in that sense. First of all, go only as you are led by the Holy Spirit. Go only as you are led by the Holy Spirit. When we think about it, it's not that we are not led to go. But rather we experience gentle leadings from God and we tend to be frightened to obey them. We may not even recognise them as leadings, which they are. When the Lord commanded Ananias to go and lay hands on Saul, he was afraid. And he, he answered sort of, you know, God wasn't quite up to speed on Saul, so he said, Lord, I've heard about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Bible says that Paul marched up the road breathing murderous threats. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the, before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Now, I want you to notice something here that is very helpful. We see from the Lord's answer to Ananias that when God commands us to go, he has already and always gone ahead of us. Do you see that? When uh, Paul rocked up at Judas's house on Straight Street to uh, engage this fellow that he didn't know but had heard so much about, he found God had got to him before he had. And that is so often the way when you get those little promptings. Perhaps at the risk of lengthening, if I pause to give you a personal experience from Port Augusta, very Tragically, a chap committed suicide in Port Augusta. Family man in his mid-30s with a couple of young kids. All the town heard about it and, and grieved. And uh, he happened to do it in the garage of his parents-in-law who were away at the time. He used the car to gas himself. And I realised that they lived across the road from one of our leading couples and I, I felt a, a prompting of the spirit towards these in-laws of the man who'd committed suicide uh, so I thought I know what I'll do I'll go and see these folk across the road and they'll know them and maybe they can go you know very courageous like that um, they didn't know I'm from Bar of Belfast I thought okay cold calling so I went across knocked on the door and a uh, older lady opened the door and she took one look at me and she said, Alf, it's our minister. She had grown up in corn, gone to Sunday school, uh, been in the Women's Guild and so on, but they were railway people. Alf was actually Father Christmas on the uh, east-west. Uh, tea and sugar train, they used to call it. And... She had moved to Port Augusta, but she hadn't made 
the church connection. But she knew who I was. I was, I was the uniting minister and I was her minister. You see, and, and so I was invited in, welcomed, ended up taking the funeral and participating with she attended church continuously after that God when God prompts you uh, in the Holy Spirit to go he has always gone before you that's very encouraging imagine the service the church service in Damascus on the Sunday after Ananias uh, had laid hands on Saul. Now, here is Saul, the enemy of Christ, in the worship service in the front seat, soon to become the apostle to the nations. I reckon the worship would really rock that morning. Don't you? Imagine if Ananias hadn't gone. I think God would have still got Paul sorted but that congregation would have missed the fun. Secondly, firstly, go only as you're led by the Holy Spirit. Are you okay with this? You're travelling all right? You're not getting too weary? Don't want me to stop you. Make room in your hearts for the, in your heart for those you go to. We human beings are spatial in ourselves now you know your body's spatial because you keep filling it up inside but i'm saying to you that your person is spatial we know that because we often say of someone oh he's full of himself <laughs> there's a space in there and he's filled it up with all his story and his stuff no room for anybody else friends one of the saddest things in my life is the number of Christians I meet who are full of themselves. By contrast, someone who has the love of God in him or her has, and here's one for you to remember the rest of your life and think about, has an interior hospitality for other people. Do you like that? An interior hospitality. For others within themselves. A welcoming space for another person and for their stuff and their story. St. Paul had an interior hospitality for those he visited in his apostolic ministry. He wrote to the Corinthian Christians, You are in our hearts to live together and to die together. That's interior hospitality. When we go the distance that separates us from others, they may be suspicious. Whenever someone shows up, what, what do you say? What does he want? What does she want? Do you, do you know? As soon as anybody knocks on the door, they, they want something, don't they? What does he want? But... If we have an interior hospitality within us for that person and their story and their stuff, they will be glad that we have come. If we are full of ourselves, then we will do two things, matching and topping. Matching is when someone 
share some of their stuff with you and you say, oh, yes, I know, that happened to me, blah, 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 blah. That's matching. And matching can be okay. That can create empathy. But watch it. It can get out of hand. Uh, but matching and topping. You think you had a bushfire or a flood. You should have been here with... That's topic. So, if you are full of yourself, continually matching and topping, the next time you show up, they will say, oh no, not him again. Not her again. Quick, duck, be quiet. She'll go away. Go only as you are led by the Holy Spirit. Make room in your heart for those to whom you go. And thirdly, this is all on a sheet. You can take it home with you afterwards. Grow a relationship with those to whom God sends you. There was a tribal elder in the Karakoram Mountains of Pakistan named Haji Ali. And he was telling a foreigner one day how relationships grow. He said, here in Pakistan... We drink three cups of tea to do business. The first cup, you are a stranger. The second, you become a friend. And the third, you join our family. And for our family, we would do anything, even die. Haji Ali is a wise man and he understands how relationships grow. He knew that each time we show up with interior hospitality, not full of ourselves, the relationship moves to a deeper level. When you as a stranger walk up someone's driveway, they say to themselves, what does he want? When you turn up a second time, they say, oh, you're back. If you turn up a third time, with interior hospitality, they uh, say, it's good to see you. When you turn up a fourth time, they welcome you as an old friend. And I've lost the fourth page here somewhere. This is the last page when I find it, actually. (sighs) Got it. In Jesus' parable of the sower, uh, sorry, of the lost sheep, notice that the shepherd, when he realised that one of his sheep was missing, left the 99 in a safe place. And he went searching for the one that was lost. When God leads you to go the distance, to reach out to someone, it involves leaving those you are familiar with those who are okay and stepping outside the square, outside the church community. Even to go across the room and speak to a stranger after church, the person on their own. It feels much more comfortable not to do this and to stay talking to your friends. 
and you may be the only person who feels compelled to go. It's helpful here to recall one of John Wesley's instructions to his helpers, Mr. Wesley's helpers, they used to call him. Uh, He said, go not to those who need you, but to those who need you most. Go not to those who need you, but to those who need you most. Friends, as a Christian, you can either be a consumer or a soldier. A consumer is always on the lookout for what might benefit them. A soldier is on the lookout to obey the orders of his commanding officer. Paul encouraged Timothy saying, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ. For no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, consumer pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul's companion, Demas, was an example of a Christian who was nevertheless a consumer. Lamentably, Paul says of him, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. By contrast, Timothy was a soldier of Christ together with Paul who really appreciated and relied on Timothy's Christian character. And... uh, Paul says to the Philippians, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, who has got interior hospitality in him for you. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. He's talking about Christians here. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Friends, being a sent soldier of the Saviour can change your whole life. In midlife, when she was around about 50 years of age, Something happened in my mum's life that enabled her to discover a whole new expression of her life. She was one of those people, uh, two bob in your lunch, I'll organise it. She was a leader, she'd do all that kind of stuff. But up until then, not the spiritual stuff in public. But one day, she felt led to go and visit a young couple in our district and in our, in our church, who were having marriage troubles. And she went, which was outside her comfort zone. And she sat with them and listened to them, and she then felt led to pray with them. And she did that. And she had never done anything like that before. 50 years of age as a Christian. That began a process that changed her life. She ended up being the 
her congregation's hospital visitor. She uh, ran a Bible study in her home. She became a lay preacher. She even took funerals. Say to yourself, if the Holy Spirit has prompted me, and if God has already gone before me, and if he has given me an interior hospitality for this person or household, and if God wants to build a relationship of love across that dividing distance. How can I not go? Brothers and sisters, go the distance. You will be so glad you did. Shall we pray? Master, speak, your servant heareth, waiting for your gracious word. Speak that I may follow faster, with a step more firm and free. I am waiting Lord, for thee, what hast thou to say to me?